Welcome everyone to episode 15 of We F'd Up. I'm Teresa. And I'm Cody. And we are here today to tell you about uh, times in history when we effed up. And today is no exception. Uh, we are going to tell you about a very sad, sad incident that happened in Hollywood history. Cody, what are we talking about today? We're talking about the uh, accident that killed three people on the set of the Twilight Zone movie in 1982. Oh boy. I think like I've said that before. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's Strange weird. Feeling. Yeah. No, no, definitely not. This no. is definitely the first time we've ever recorded episode 15. Yes, absolutely. We are professionals. <laughs> yes, we did not F up. <laughs> ever. Yeah. Uh, Squeaky yeah, clean. Listeners, a little inside baseball. This is our second attempt at recording this episode. Uh, unfortunately, the first one was, um, how should we put it? Uh, lost. <laughs> lost. It's shrouded in the mists of history now. Well, half of it was. Mine, no. mine still exists. <laughs> yeah, well. I should have listened to that as a monitor, and then that way I remember my jokes. Because they're worth remembering. <laughs> oh, sometimes I nail it. Sometimes. On, on this sometimes. Podcast. Plural being two times you've nailed it. <laughs> out of about 10,000. Wow. Okay, getting roasted on my own podcast. Cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was really expecting that. Yay. Well. Anyways. Yeah, anyway. Um, Anyways. So, a little bit of background. Uh, the Twilight Zone was a TV series that originally aired from 1959 to 1964. Yeah, Rod uh, Serling. Yes, uh, it had an anthology format, uh, with each episode being largely self-contained mm-hmm. or really related to each other. We love a we love a good anthology in this mm-hmm. household. Yes, the series entered syndication after it ended, and proved popular and influential on many aspiring filmmakers. Right. Yeah. Uh, in 1982, production began on a film adaptation called Creatively. Twilight Zone the movie. <laughs> yeah. Um also just a quick note, Rod Serling was from uh was from Yellow Springs. He taught at Antioch College in Yellow Springs. A little bit of local knowledge there. And he also lived in Cincinnati. He had a, a big house in Cincinnati. I don't know if he was raised there or if he retired there. It's one of the two, but in any case, wherever it was that he lived is now a strip mall. He lived in Cincinnati until his death. Hmm. Wow. So, kind of cool. Little local little local history for us. Uh, like the series, uh, the film would consist of largely unconnected segments to be directed by Joe Dante, George Miller, Steven Spielberg, and John Landis. So, it's like, uh, just if you've never seen the movie, which, I mean, this podcast might make you want to see it out of curiosity, but it also might sour you on the idea. Yeah. Um... It is a, so yes, the stories are kind of unconnected, but normally with an anthology movie like that, like body bags or, you know, any random number of those, um, you'll have like a wraparound story and yeah, then there's, like yeah, little there's one in this with the, I think when Dan Aykroyd in it or something. Yeah. yeah. Yep. The wraparound's yeah. got Dan Aykroyd. So, um, but each of these four directors, you know, up and coming actor, not actors, up and coming directors. Joe Dante for Gremlins, George Miller for Mad Max, uh, Steven Spielberg for numerous things. Mm-hmm. Uh, was probably the most established of any of them at that point. And John Landis um, had made you know, several uh, films, which we'll get into in his background here. Um, mm-hmm. Landis had been born in August 1950 in Chicago. Uh, he began work as a mailboy at 20th Century Fox in the late 60s. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, um, did they, I wonder if they had the little tubes, the pneumatic tubes, the mail tubes. No, oh, maybe, maybe he has... sucked the letters up in there. Uh, maybe, I, I don't know. I just imagine it like, uh, I think it's an elf where he works in the mail room with that guy who's just drinking like McGillicuddy's <laughs> <laughs> like malt liquor yeah. Yeah. and like they're laying in the big mail carts and putting stuff in pneumatic tubes. I was tubes. always fascinated by like... The little tubes at the bank. Yeah. Oh, when I was a kid, I was so fascinated by those. I'm just like, ooh. It's the same thing. I yeah. mean, they used to have them in police stations or any big building that needed, yep. like, quick messages that it had to move faster than the elevator. Because, so. children, there was a time before text messages. And emails. And emails. Yeah. You had to either send a message yourself via actual printed mail or just go yourself and actually interact face to face 
with another human being. <gasps> so, um, so tiny bit of history about pneumatic tubes for letters, because why not? Uh, they were invented in 1854 in Le- in the London Stock Exchange. That's a tiny bit of so knowledge. So it was needed for, for rich people to do things. Probably to, like, change the price of stocks and stuff. I probably. bet it was to, like, change the ticker price faster. Yeah, probably. This is because it's pre-telephone. Yeah. I mean, I guess in 1950, they or at the time that John yeah. Landis was a mailboy, they would have had a switchboard and telephone, but... They, I mean, they probably would have had, like, a wireless... Well, that was... When was the wireless uh, telegraph invented? Was that around at the time? I, I don't know. Well, I don't know about wireless... Or, 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 I mean, just the telegraph. The te- well, the telegraph was invented by Guglielmo Marconi in the early 1900s. Okay, so. So, so it wasn't around yet. Okay, anyway. Um, also, kids, 20th Century Fox used to be its own thing. <laughs> yeah. So. Gosh. Now, that, it's so weird that media has whittled down to just, like... Four. Yeah, like yeah. four big companies. Yeah. Are, are you including Apple in that? I just had, I just pulled that number out of my butt. Oh, so. okay. All right. Um, anyway, back to the subject at hand. John <laughs> Landis. Uh, he served as, as an assistant on films uh, such as Kelly's Heroes with Clint Eastwood and Once Upon a Time in the West with uh, Henry Fonda. Um, he made his directorial debut in 1973 with the movie Schlock. <laughs> That's right, because I just recently saw a um, a poster for that. And I can't remember exactly what it is, but it was like a Creature from the Black Lagoon thing. Is it supposed to be like a parody movie? I, I don't know. Okay. I, I don't know anything about it. It's the first I'd ever heard of it when researching this episode. Yeah. Um, I've never seen But he establishes directorial bona fides with uh, the Kentucky Fried Movie in 1977, Animal House in 1978, The Blues Brothers in 1980, and one of your favorites, An American Werewolf in London in 1982. I do love that. It it also makes me feel though because I know what's going to happen and I knew what was going to happen beforehand. It just makes me feel even more disappointed in John Landis and like hmm. more, uh, like shaking my fist at him. Like you should have known better. You had plenty of opportunities to and experience with like dangerous stuff and yep. um, explosions and things like that. Yeah. You should have known better. He Anyways, <laughs> um. He began production on his segment of the Twilight Zone movie in early 1982. So he's literally our age. Well, a little older than our age, or will be my age in four days when he was doing his stuff on this movie. So. Yeah. So, yeah. So you see a But little... also, he he was a hotshot. Yep. I mean, oh, yeah. Steve, Steven Spielberg didn't become, like, uber famous until Jaws. he was, like, in his middle... I want to say he was, like, in his 40s or 50s, right? No, he was... Like, Jaws was, yeah, he was, like, 30 when he did Jaws. Okay, well, never mind. Ex- ignore that. But anyways, he was, like, That's right... Fainted. Anyways, <laughs> Landis was writing a high of oh, several yeah. very successful movies, and it kind of made him cocky. Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Um, Landis's segment uh, in the film was a semi-remake of the original series episode, A Quality of Mercy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the segment... Uh, the main character portrays a mi- or the main character is a middle-aged racist man, bitter at being passed over for promotion at his job in favor of another employee who happens to be Jewish. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this character in this segment is was played by the actor Vic Morrow. Okay. Uh, Morrow, been born in February 1929 in New York City, so he's uh, uh, in his mid 50s at this point, mm-hmm. early mid 50s. Uh, after performing on stage, he began acting on screen in 1955. Uh, just numerous guest roles and bit parts in films, like nothing big. Like you, you, you definitely class him as like a B-list actor. Mm-hmm. Um, highlights include the 1958 Elvis movie King Creole. There you go, Steve. Uh, <laughs> and the World War II action series Combat, which ran for five seasons in the 1960s, and for which Morrow was nominated for an Emmy Award. Okay. So, do you think that this was just going to be another, like, notch in his belt? Or do you think that this was going to be, like, an actual... Was this, like... Do you think that there's any speculation as to whether or not this was supposed to be his breakout role? No. Okay. No, it, was just, it was just, like... I mean, yeah, I mean, he's starring in, like, a one quarter of a film, yeah. I guess. So, 
a character actor. I mean, so uh, yeah, I mean, his segment is, is not bad. No, no, it's steady work. Yeah. But anyway, um, he continued with guest spots and supporting roles all the way up through being cast in Twilight Zone the movie. So, so anyway, in this segment, Morrow's character. While ranting and raving in a bar, he steps outside and is transported through three different time periods. Oh, I guess I should say, spoiler alert uh, for all this. I guess maybe we should have led with that, but yeah, it, it's a 40-year-old movie at this point. I, I think spoiler warnings are past. Um, anyway, while, while ranting and raving in a bar, he steps outside and is transported through three different time periods as a victim of violence. To Nazi-occupied France, because Nazis, violent. Uh, to the 1950s South as a black man. And to Vietnam during the Vietnam War. Right. Uh, it ends with his character being transported back to France and forced into a cattle car with Jewish prisoners bound for a concentration camp. Right. Um, the it's Vietnam the, portion... I'm oh, sorry, go ahead. It's one of those Twilight Zone segments where, like, the ending is ambi- ambiguous and mm-hmm. also not good. Yeah. Because I'm pretty sure it just ends, right? Like, yeah, he's in the cattle car and he's yep. just like, alright, cool, that's yep. it, you're done. You're probably never getting back. Uh, the Vietnam portion of the segment involved not only explosions, but a sequence with a helicopter. Mm-hmm. So, filming in uh, filming began in July 1983 for the Vietnam portion of Landis' segment uh, at the Indian Dunes Ranch in Valencia, California. Hmm. Oranges. Filming began in July 1982 uh, in Indian Dunes Ranch in Valencia, California for the Vietnam portion of Landis' segment. Uh, the scene in particular, particular involved Morrow carrying two children from a village under attack by an American helicopter. Okay. The two children cast for the shoot were Micah Din Lee, age seven, and Renee Shinyi Chin, aged six. Right. So two very small children. Yeah. And this, uh, there isn't like one specific F up you could point to, I suppose, for this one. But I, if anything, it's it's what I'm about to say here. Okay. Landis violated California's child labor laws by casting the children and not getting the appropriate permits. That's so gross. Yeah. Not only are you... Exploiting children. You're exploiting children in a story that is not so very far removed from the current time. I mean, my dad was in Vietnam and he was discharged from the army in 1977, so only five years before this. Yeah, the Vietnam War, like, our involvement in it ended only, like, nine years beforehand. Yeah. So. So... You have a guy who's telling a really sensitive story about people who are still very much alive and experiencing all the after effects of Vietnam. And then you're also using children to tell that story, but you're not going through the appropriate channels and getting whatever permits you need. You're putting them in danger. Yeah. Because the scene involved explosions and other possibilities for injury. So is I wonder if that's why he had to get the permits, or if there are regular permits that are needed just for working with kids. No, oh, I mean I know there's there's regular ones needed. Okay, like they can only work certain hours or for a certain length of time. There's a, it's like a heavily heavily regulated. Well, well, um, it needs to be. Oh yeah, yeah, and I and part of it, um, like well, Landis didn't think that the permits would be approved because this scene had explosions and. They could get hurt. So he was just like, better to ask for forgiveness than beg for permission. Pretty much. Uh, The children had been cast after Chin's uncle had been asked by a production assistant's husband to participate. And brought on Lee, the the child of a friend. So it's like, the PA's husband asked some person he knew, probably just because he looked Asian. Cool. Can I have your kid for this movie? It was probably just supposed to be, like, a real low-key, oh, yeah. like, like, under, under the, the table. table. Yeah. We'll like, pay you, like, yep. 150 bucks cash if we get your kid for, you know, a couple of days of shooting or yep. something. And which all, I, Yeah. Which, which, sorry, go ahead. I mean, uh, well, they also, like, uh, Chin's uncle wasn't told that explosives or a helicopter were going to be involved. So they probably just thought, oh, you know, it'd be cool for them to, you know, be in a movie or something. And yeah. Not... I don't. I, I don't know if that's like the parents. How much culpability the parents would have for letting them do that? Yeah, it's like, are they also exploiting their children? Well, also, or is it just you know, like a fun experience for them? Cracking into the like into um, Hollywood as a kid is hard if you don't have 
family members who are already in the industry or yeah. you don't have an in or you don't work in the industry. Like, it's really hard to get kids in there. So it could have gone one of two ways. It could have either been that they were like, oh, this will be cool for the kids to, like, get out of school for a week and film on a movie set and then, you know, never do it ever again. Mm. Or it could have also been like, this could have been... Springboard to something else. Think about all of the actors that you can think of that had random stuff like Harrison Ford. He was like a carpenter on movie sets. Yeah. And then randomly, George Lucas was like, you. Yeah, he come- specifically didn't want him for Han Solo because he'd been in American Graffiti. Yeah. And, but like he's like, well, I need somebody to read these lines. Yeah. And he's like, oh, there, there's my Han Solo. Faster. There, there he is. <laughs> That's our George Lucas impression, by yes, the way. Yes. <laughs> Why did he sound like that? This is so weird. But faster, more intense. I already said that. I already, I already used I'm a joke. That again. Anyways, it's hard to crack in. But think about all of the actors you can think of who had a similar discovery story, where they were just like, "I was on set, and they liked the way I looked." Like the kid who played McLovin in Superbad. <laughs> At that, literally, oh, that. Judd Apatow was driving down the street and was like, that kid, he's <laughs> going to be in it. Yeah. And that's how he was discovered. So maybe the parents were like, this could be a good way to get the kids discovered. But if, like, if we go through all of this permit paperwork stuff, then the kids won't yeah. get to experience it. So let's just go ahead and do it. And also it's like, yeah, yeah it's like, shouldn't they have asked, like, well, why... Why, like why 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 do we have to be like under the table and stuff? Isn't there like a process to this? But maybe they didn't know. Maybe yeah. they didn't have that inside info. It's possible because we so. don't know what their parents did. They could have been like totally outside of it and thought that everything was above board. Yeah, which is probably where I'd lean to. I mean, like, uh, well, like one of the parents, like some of the parents were there on like one of them was yeah. on there on set. But we'll get to that in a bit. Okay. When they were on set, a an asso- another associate producer hid the children from a fire safety officer when they came to inspect the set prior to shooting. Which is always a good sign. Yes. Hiding of people, especially children, yeah. when a safety officer comes around. Yeah. The only time hiding children is a good thing is when, like, you know, Nazis are coming. <laughs> yeah, like an Anne Frank situation. Yeah. Um, the helicopter used in the scene was a Bell UH-1B Iroquois, commonly known as a Huey, and mm-hmm. used extensively during the Vietnam War. Right. Uh, and after the Vietnam War, there were so so much surplus of them lying around. That's how a lot of them ended up in movies. Uh, I know that they used one in Star Trek Four. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I remember like the scene where they had to go get the plexiglass to lower into the ship, and Sulu was piloting it. You probably fell asleep by that point. Um, I don't know if I was asleep, but I don't remember. No, nah, you, you were probably asleep. It didn't imprint in me. All right, it didn't imprint on because your mind. eyes were shut. And you were asleep. <laughs> it could have been. Could have been that. But it could have just been that I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Anyway. The Huey was piloted by uh, a Vietnam veteran named Dorsey Wingo, uh-huh. uh, which is a weird name, um, and had five other film crew on board. Okay. Uh, when filming began, Wingo hovered the Huey about 25 feet off the ground. Yeah. Man, I don't ever like stories that have anything to do with helicopters. They're been, wily. been in one once when I was seven. Is that when you went to the Grand Canyon? Yes. Okay. I've never been in one. I've never been in a helicopter, but they are very difficult to pilot. Yeah. It takes a lot of work and effort and skill to be able to do it. And like, let's say a crazy windstorm happens or like any number of things. I'm just not going to be on one willingly. Yeah. It's like with a plane, if it has multiple engines, it can fly if like one or two engines go out. And it can also glide. It can also glide. The helicopter it's like, especially like if the... Especially if, like, that back rotor gets, like, even the slightest bit messed up, your helicopter's gonna start spinning. Right. So it's like, yeah, that, that's not, yeah, it's... My dad, uh, my dad, who was actually in Vietnam um, for two years, uh, he, so he was in the army, and they would do something he calls auto-rotation drills, where they would cut the engines to mm. the helicopter and spin, and then they had to turn the engines back on and save the helicopter. And it was supposed to be like a test for what would happen if the engines got cut out. And he said that it like messed up his inner ear from like falling and then the, and the spinning and then like being jerked out of it. Well, I was like, I nope. mean, it's, it's documented that the U.S. military did not give 
too much of a damn about its soldiers during the Vietnam War. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, also that they were like, yeah. so we're gonna practice what it's like to fall from a <laughs> fall in a helicopter yeah. and almost hit the ground. Ready? <laughs> yeah. That's pretty much it. You're also downwind from some Agent Orange. Just saying, yeah. it's not gonna come back in twenty years. Yeah, my uncle actually had that. Uh, he got that um like settlement thing yeah. from that. I mean, now, granted, like, his kidneys are all messed up and he's missing part of his liver because of it. So, like, what kind of quality of life do you have? But yeah. Anyway. Yeah. We I'm digress. From, I'm from those depressing uh, I'm I'm from those depressing things to more depressing things. Different depressing <laughs> yes. things. Um, so, as Wingo shifted the Huey around for a camera shot, a mortar effect under the tail went off. Uh, while this was happening, Landis, who's on the ground was telling Wingo over the radio to, quote, get lower. Ugh. As the effect went off, it damaged the tail rotor, causing Wingo to lose control. It actually, like, now that I'm thinking about this, I, I've had a little bit of time to think about what was happening there. Yeah, you've had a week to think about it since I told you the first time. Yeah, I know. Um, so, there, not only was it John Landis's responsibility to create a safe set or a, you know, an, a, a feeling that, you could come to him if you saw anything wrong. But also, it would have been very, very simple to make that mortar effect like 20, 30, 40, 50 feet behind the helicopter and just film it in a way that it looks yeah. like it's very dangerous. I'm just uh, thinking about... Like a, like a perspective shot. Yeah, I'm thinking about Lord of the Rings. Like, oh, yeah. Literally all of the scenes with Gandalf are filmed in such a way, a forced perspective to make little Elijah Wood, who is also very small look even smaller yeah. in comparison. And John Landis could have easily done that because they were on a fairly large yeah. filming area. Yeah. So anyways, sorry, I'm just thinking. Yeah, of, or just like maybe not have it go off right at that moment when the yeah. helicopter is near it. Yeah. Just, you should never yeah. have a dangerous explosive nearby to an, any sort of, like, piloted yeah. like, you could machinery. have, like, second unit stuff, just film some explosions. Exactly. And kind of just cut it into the movie. Yeah. You know, e even in 1982, they, they, they could have done that. Yeah, I mean, how, there are lots of films that were totally successful there. that didn't have these problems. Yeah. With, like, I mean, well... I was going to say Apocalypse Now. Not no, a good <laughs> not a good example. No, no it is not. <laughs> That's no. probably maybe only the second worst to this. <laughs> yeah. Martin Sheen had a heart attack. He did. That scene awful. where he's drunk in his underwear and punches the mirror. He's drunk in his underwear and he punches a mirror. Like, actually, like, literally. <laughs> so. That's crazy. That blood is his. Oh, boy. So, yeah. Um, anyway. Um, anyway, Wingo starts losing control. As the Huey began to fly out of control, at this point in the shot, Moro is in the water, waist deep in the water with both of the, both of the children under his arms. Right. Um, he drops Chin into the water, but he managed to hang on to Lee. As he reached down to get Chin, because he dropped her, trying to get her out of the way of this, the main rotor blades came down and decapitated Moro at the neck, and Lee from the neck to the shoulder under the armpit. Chin was crushed by the Huey as it crashed. That is... I wonder... I don't wonder, because it would be terrible, but I can only imagine what people on set, like, watching and the parents watching yep. would have thought. Because, I mean, it happened so quick, so maybe you can't even perceive what really happened until later. Because a falling helicopter, and also the propeller blades, like, propeller blades are right, moving they're, pretty they're quick. quick. So, were they able to perceive what was happening? Like, did they know that Vic Morrow had been decapitated at that moment? Or did it take somebody taking them out of the water to be able to put piece together what happened? From what I understand, it, the blade also kind of hit the water. Like, it, like the end of the blade hit the water at the same time. So, it probably splashed up some water. Uh -huh. So, they probably didn't see it happen. It just, like, once they got there, they're like, oh. Yeah. yeah. Man. So. Um, all six people on board the helicopter survived. Right. I think we looked at the, a picture of the Huey, yeah. too. Yeah, like, the main, like, crew cabin isn't that damaged. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, that is how they're designed. Yeah. The, the crew cabin is up and away from most of the fuel areas and things yeah. like that. They're supposed to... They're designed to crash yeah. and for those people inside to survive, so... Yeah. 
Uh, remaining footage for the sequence was filmed over the next several days because they so, had to finish it. Okay, so yeah, they had to finish it. But do you think that John Landis like lied about what had happened, or do you think he was just like, "Nope, you guys have to carry on. I don't care how many people died." I don't think he would have been able to cover it, uh, cover up somebody, two kids dying, and uh, a guy get their main actor getting decapitated. I don't think they could have covered that up. Man, that's. So. Uh, well, yeah. I mean, to like something as tragic as that happening, and knowing that the kids' parents aren't also acting in the like actually acting in the scene, yeah, everybody was probably in a state of shock, and they were also probably like, "Let's go ahead and finish this up because who knows are... when we're going to get to work again?" Yeah, and also they're probably all under contract, or a lot of them are probably under contract to like you have to finish this. But don't you think they also could have invoked like union stuff and said like. Oh, we're going to the union because this is messed up. I don't know. I don't have. Couldn't find anything about that. Okay. Um, as Landis' segment was the first to be filmed, uh, the other directors hastily wrapped up their own involvement because obviously this makes the newspapers. So they're like, we don't want to be associated with this. Uh, Spielberg finished his segment in just six days, um, while Miller filmed his and refused to do any post-production work. It's like I did the bare minimum. You guys can edit this. I'm out. I'm going to go film Beyond Thunderdome. <laughs> yeah, and, um, okay, so apparently, uh, you know, I looked, I thought that there was a a scene where somebody died in the original Mad Max movie, because George Miller is kind of notorious for, like, the first Mad Max movie was, like, super low budget, actually mm. crashing cars and blowing them up and stuff. And so I thought it was kind of um, ironic that now... I mean, how how long would, would this have been after the original Mad Max? Uh, a, few, just a few years. So the first one was 1978 or 79, I want to say. Um, it. So I think that it is fairly ironic that just a few years later, somebody who really went fast and loose with a movie like George Miller... And did super low budget was so quick to be like I'm out on this movie. Like it just goes to show. Well, I mean, this was how also reckless it was. Like, big budget Hollywood movie, whereas Mad Max was like low budget Australian movie. Like, like the first, the first Mad Max. I don't like it was very had a very low limited release here in the United States. Like the Road Warrior was the first one to really yeah it, at least be acknowledged here. So people were just probably people probably just didn't know. So he's probably just like, well, not too many people over here know about that one. So, well, I so I looked it up. There, there's a scene that everybody uh, thinks that it kills one of the toe cutters in Mad Max, um, where they jump the bike off the bridge and then he has to land. Mm. Well, I guess they like took a bunch of stuff off the bike because they didn't want to break it up more than it needed to be for the scene, and it also kind of worked because they wanted it to be stripped down. But the guy held onto the bike too long and didn't roll away, and so another bike came down on oh. top of him. Um, he was fine. It looks bad, but he's wearing a helmet, and mm. like he was a maybe low budget, but he was a stuntman, so yeah. it was okay. But it just, like, that movie is very, very gritty and done on a shoestring budget, and still, it just makes it even more, like, important that he was like, that is not the, how you do this stuff. Mm. Um, after completing his segment, Landis left to go film Trading Places. Mm-hmm. Uh, Twilight Zone, the movie, was released on June 24th, 1983 to middling reviews. Mm-hmm. Um, moderate, only moderate success at the box office kind of kiboshed plans for a sequel. You said that they people were not really aware of what exactly had happened at the time that the movie came out, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, they knew people died, but... They didn't know the exact details of everything that, okay. that I've talked about so far. Um, but CBS, uh, like I said, only moderate box office success. No so it wasn't, no it wasn't because of that, though? No. Okay. I mean, it may, maybe some people were just like, oh, I don't want to go see this. And they're like, maybe. It probably but, would have tanked, though, if they knew Possibly, everything. yeah. Like, if everyone knew the details, yeah, probably would have. But anyway, um, the moderate success at the box office... No sequel, but it encouraged CBS to greenlight a revival series on TV, which ran from 1985 to 1989. Um, in October 1984, 
The official NTSB report of the accident lay the blame on a lack of communication between the pilot, Wingo, and the director, Landis. Um, shortly before the release of the film, um, so, this, I mean, yeah, the crash may have had something to do with it, and this also uh, maybe clued people into, like, maybe there's more to this. Mm-hmm. Uh, shortly before the release of the film, Landis and four others were indicted on manslaughter charges. But that doesn't necessarily mean that everybody knew about that. Right. Like, getting indicted then on manslaughter, I mean, it sounds like it would be really important, but that doesn't mean that somebody couldn't have, you know, crushed that story at the paper or something. Yeah, and also, you know, if it's a few days before, and it's like, yeah, it's going to make the headlines, like, maybe L.A. or something, but, Mm -hmm. like, you know, Vandalia, Ohio, probably not going to make the front lines of the drummer. Yeah, no. So... People are probably still going to go to the theater. Right. So, because news traveled much slower back then. Yep. Um, not instantly like it does now. Yeah. Um, motions and counter motions dragged on. So, the trial didn't start until September 1986. So, we're like well over four years since the incident happened. Yeah. Um, and three years since uh, the, tr- the, the indictments were handed down. Uh, Landis's negligence was revealed during the trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to illegally hiring the children, Landis had lied to the parents, uh, saying that there would be no explosions on set, quote, only noise, quote. I bet you... Okay, so that's a random thing to volunteer. Like, can we have your kids for a movie? There won't be any explosions. Well, they probably asked. That's what I mean. Yeah. So the parents were probably like, okay, yeah, safe? like... Yeah, are there going to be explosions? And he's like, no, it'll just be noise. Yeah. It's like, okay, even if you had the best intentions, you just straight up lied to the parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, Lee's father, Daniel, an immigrant from Vietnam, was on set at the time and testified that the scene caused him to have flashbacks to the war. God. So you're having flashbacks to Vietnam, Vietnam flashbacks, which are terrible. I mean... Uh, I think that that is something that we're only now being able to talk about with any sort of frankness is like how, how terrible it was for people who lived in Vietnam to have experience of Vietnam mm-hmm. War and how shady it was and how yeah. like, I mean, really, it only came into like actual truth and honesty what was happening there in like the 90s and the 2000s. Yep. So well, that's, for- when, that's when you started getting a lot of. Vietnam vets in some degrees of positions of power, mm-hmm. like, you know, they're, they're at that age where they're starting to serve in office or serve as, you know, leaders of society, so. Yeah, and you also have people who are from Vietnam mm-hmm. and people who grew up in Vietnam and were kids during that time actually able to say, like, yeah. hey, this is what happened and to me. Normalization of relations between the United States and Vietnam, so. Yeah. So this guy who's like, oh, wow, it triggered my PTSD flashbacks for, from Vietnam, and also my kid got crushed. Yeah. What a terrible day for him. Well, I mean, for all the parents, but... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just mean because he was there. Yeah. One of the camera operators on the Huey, Stephen Lidecker, uh, stated that Landis had half-joked that, quote, we may lose the helicopter, quote, end quote, when told that the stunt might be dangerous. It's like... They, they tell him, it's like, hey, this might be dangerous. Oh, yeah, we might lose it. It's a, it's just so chilling that it's a director's job to keep everybody on set safe. Mm-hmm. Like, you want to do the things that you want to do. You want to get the, yeah. the footage or whatever. But it's a director's job above everything else to keep everybody mentally and physically safe. People's safety is more important than your vision. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's just chilling to hear him say something like, oh, well, we could lose a helicopter. Like, in a sarcastic... If it was, like, a model helicopter, if we're talking, like, we're going back to, like, Star Trek time, where yeah. they had, like, a, you know, a matte painting and a and a little oh, 3D model. I miss matte paintings. Then that's one thing. Like, oh, we might lose the model helicopter, which is exactly how they would do stuff like that. Or we might lose the stunt car or something mm. like that. But this is... A helicopter over top of three living people with six human beings inside. And he was just like, oh, we might lose the helicopter. In what, like, way, shape, or form would that have been funny? It's not like a fake helicopter with nobody in it. He's saying it more, like, sarcastically, like, that's not going to happen. Yeah, well. Because it's, like, the hubris. Yeah. Um, 
Also, uh, another quote from Lidecker. Uh, quote, I learned not to take anything the man said as a joke. It was his attitude. He didn't have time for suggestions from anybody. End quote. This is terrible. Um, it was also brought up that Morrow may not have been physically able to get out of danger as he was waist deep in water carrying two children. I would struggle with that and I'm in my early 30s. Yeah. A man in his early 50s is definitely going to struggle with it. I don't it, care who they are. And he was not, he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's, right. He's like already, a, he was like overweight. Like, yeah. the, I mean, the whole scene is about him being like overweight and an alcoholic and like in a bar drowning in sorrows. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so, like, on a good day, yeah. probably couldn't have carried his groceries to, from the car to the, up some stairs without, you know, well, I, losing I his breath. I that. <laughs> Landis just dismissed this claim, because, of course, his casting was spot on. Okay, well, all right, so let's say Maro could have hulked these two kids into some, like, into a good, yeah. you know, space or whatever. What about the kids? They didn't have any freedom to move around. Like. Yeah. They probably would have drowned if they were, you know... Did that, they even the know water, how to swim? Yeah, the water is too high for them to be in mm-hmm. there uh, on their own. Like, it's silly to say, oh, well, he could have gotten to safety. Like, okay, are the kids chopped liver? Like, what? Yeah. Uh, Wingo even went so far as to blame the deaths on Morrow not getting out of the way quickly enough. Cool. Yeah. Then you should do it in water. Yeah. Waste deep water with two kids. In May 1987, so this trial goes on, it goes from September 86 to May 87, so it goes on for a while. It's a lot of testimony. In May 1987, after nine days of deliberation, all of the defendants were found not guilty. This had been the first time that a director had been charged for onset fatalities. I can only wonder what the, what the actual trial was like for them to all be found not guilty of manslaughter. Yeah. And not even brought up on lesser charges. The Screen Actors Guild established a 24-hour hotline for on-set personnel to report any unsafe practices. Which is good. Yeah. That should always oh, be a thing. Yeah, like there is positive change that comes out of this horrific tragedy. Um, the Directors Guild of America began publishing safety bulletins and created its own hotline for directors to inquire about correct safety procedures. Uh, so you can ring them up like, hey, is this safe? No, don't do it. Um, the FAA strengthened its regulations regarding helicopter use in film. Uh, between 1982 and 1986, onset accidents fell by nearly 70%. Well, yeah. I mean, it's terrible that that's what it took for that to yes. be the change that was put into place. But I mean, the- as we saw in a couple episodes ago... Sometimes it takes, like, for needed change to happen, it takes a horrific tragedy to do it, for for it to be, for people to be motivated to do something about it. Yeah, and I mean, yes, it's terrible, and do I personally think that John Landis was culpable? Absolutely. I think that it is a director's primary responsibility for everybody's safety, and so they are always... Uh, unless it's truly an accident, mm. they are always responsible for the safety yeah. of every person on set. Like, um, like let's say, you know, there there is truly an accident where, like, a tree fell over or something like that. That's, that's one thing. But it's something else entirely to put people in danger deliberately to get a, a shot. But I wonder how many accidents it has prevented. Because of the things that were enacted yeah. after this movie. It's like, like how many lives did it save? Exactly. So. Um, Landis's career did not immediately suffer from the accident. Uh, as he directed Trading Places, as I mentioned in 1983. Mm-hmm. The Thriller music video in 1983. Yeah. Uh, Spies Like Us in 1985, which we've seen. Mm-hmm. And Three Amigos in 1986. Between the accident and the trial. So, still three... Great comedy films. Right. Uh, one of the most successful music videos of all time. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it was like the, the most watched music video of all time for a long, long time. Yeah. After the trial and acquittal, however, the only box office success he directed was Coming to America in 1988. I wonder if that is only because things... Like, I don't know how far they had already gotten in filming by the time that that came around. By the time that the trial yeah, actually I mean, happened. Yeah, I mean, May 87... 
Yeah, that may have already been like in pre- like the preliminary stages. He may yeah. have already been hired by that point. Because that movie did really, really well. Oh yeah, yeah, very so. well. I mean, is Eddie Mur like the golden age of Eddie Murphy? So yeah, that. Yeah. We also have to consider this is before Twitter and Facebook and instant information mm-hmm. and being able to Google someone. So yeah. it could have been that maybe the coming to America, um, like like publicity beforehand maybe they downplayed john landis's involvement yeah because like i didn't even think it, i didn't even know he directed it for years yeah like because it honestly in an eddie murphy movie the director's kind of irrelevant yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and um, they could have just you know they maybe the production company or the you know the marketers or whatever were just like yeah that guy just got out of yeah. a manslaughter trial maybe don't put his name on any of the big stuff like it's small print on the poster yeah so just like a film by john or a john landis film just yeah put like directed by john landis not like a, yeah, yeah it's not like a steven spielberg billing it's like a yeah. like an unknown billing to, to save Smithy. the movie <laughs> who that was the nom de plume that like directors would always use like when they would would want to disown a film they would always like try to get themselves corrected or direct, or credited as Alan Smithy. You ever heard that? Uh-uh. Yeah, I mean, they, they don't do it because, like, it, the secret's kind of out now about it, so. Can you give an example of a time that that happened? I know David Lynch tried to do it for Dune. <laughs> um, yeah, but but failed. I, I can't think of any, because the films are all crap. Mm. So I can't think of any off the top of my head, but yeah, like, Alan Smith, like, yeah. So it used to be a thing, um. They would try to get their names removed from the film. If, like, the studio took control of the movie and edited it into something that was unrecognizable for what the director wanted. Ooh, okay. Something like that. All right. So, uh, but anyway, um, Coming to America 88, that's his last box office success. A string of flops in the 90s effectively ended his career, including Oscar, which I have a soft spot for because it's Stallone. Uh, Very um, weird coincidence. The second assistant director of Twilight Zone, the movie, used Alan Smithy to distance himself from the film. His name is Anderson House, but he used uh, the pseudonym for that segment. It's a a rare instance where the credit was actually taken by an assistant director instead of the main director. So, interesting. Yeah. Anyway, uh, further flops. uh, Beverly Hills Cop 3. Yeah, I didn't even know that there was a third one. Don't ever watch the third one. It's god-awful. Has George Lucas cameo, so bringing it back around. Oh, boy. Um, And one of the worst movies I think I've ever seen, at least one of the worst sequels I've ever seen, Blues Brothers 2000. Oh, boy. Ooh, that is a rough movie to watch. Um, So, yeah, his career, he's pretty much been reduced to, like, directing episodes of tv and some random documentaries so um his days in the top of the box office are long gone um, yeah he's landis has never really accepted blame for the incident um in a 1996 interview he stated quote there was absolutely no good aspect about this whole story the tragedy which i think about every day sure had an enormous impact on my career from which it may possibly never recover end quote so it's like he's more like he's concern about it is like oh it may hurt my career not the fact that three people died including two children who never who never had the chance to grow up and be anything yeah like in all the surrounding lives that this incident like affected um it's very easy to see from like you know they always say like hindsight's twenty twenty, and it's very easy to see his culpability then or now so I can only imagine what would cause somebody to find him not guilty because even now I'm like, I'm just like, I'm thinking about all of the different things that he neglected to do. Like he didn't get the proper permits. These children were hidden from a fire safety officer. Yeah. He deliberately had a very unsafe scene where pyrotechnics were causing uh, explosions near helicopters but he had people underneath of a helicopter, which even if there weren't explosions, you should not have people underneath of a helicopter, especially not yeah. children. I think it may have been a situation where it's like, well, he was extremely negligent, but mm. this, like I said, this is also the first time a director had ever been charged for yeah. something like this. There was no precedent for it. Sure. And 
his negligence... Uh, I'm trying to play devil's advocate here. Because in any trial, the burden of proof is always on the prosecution. So it's like they may not have been able to prove effectively enough that he did this. Mm. He was completely responsible for this. Mm. So if there's even a shadow of a doubt, you can't convict them. Yeah. So... I guess I, I I guess it would be yeah. a time when you would want to establish like who is in charge of these things, uh-huh. and this would be a good time to establish a baseline. The director is in charge of these things. Yeah. So, um, another quote from Landis. Um, even at Vic Morrow's uh, even at Vic Morrow's funeral, he stated during his eulogy of Morrow, quote. Tragedy can strike in an instant, but film is immortal. Vic lives forever. Just before the last take, Vic took me aside to thank me for the opportunity to play this role. Do you, th- do you think that that really happened? Yeah. You it, think he it, took him aside to... Oh, oh, oh you mean like him like yeah. actually taking him aside? No. You think that he made that up? Yeah. Also, who let this guy at this dude's funeral? I could see him going. No, but... Should, the, the, some, like, as soon as he stands up, somebody should have been like, uh, Sir, you need to sit down. Where somebody's yeah, yeah, like, gonna fight you. He should have been just like sitting at the back, very quiet. Yeah, and maybe nobody knew what the circumstances were. Maybe they were uh, yeah. just like, "Oh, yeah. it was an onset accident." Yeah. So well, how he went sad. to the funerals of the kids. I know and, it's like, terrible. Yeah, his, his, their parents were giving him pretty cold stares. Death, death yeah. glares. Yeah. Um, in a civil suit, Morrow's family, including his daughter Jennifer Jason Lee, uh, settled for an undisclosed amount. Uh, the children's families were awarded large settlements. Good. Yes. I mean, good that he was found to be guilty in some circumstance. Yeah. Um, Even if it just is financial. Like OJ. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Spielberg refused to work with Landis afterwards, uh, saying, quote, No movie is worth dying for. If something isn't safe, it's the right and responsibility of every actor or crew member to yell cut. Yeah. Quote. Which also, I mean... Spielberg, one of the most powerful men in Hollywood, probably affected Landis's future work prospects. Uh, I mean, how many movies came across Spielberg's desk just as a producer that Landis probably could have done? Like some comedies in the 80s or 90s. Um, or Spielberg just telling people, hey, this is what happened. Don't hire this Joker. Exactly. And, so. like, using... So it it is good. I I don't know like if there have ever been actors that were hurt in in Spielberg movies, but um it is important to note that somebody who's so powerful did really take a stand on that because I could very easily have just been like I will not comment on this and will no longer like I'm just not going to talk yep. about it. Yep. But instead he really, you know, used his kind of influence to actually make a stand about it. So um Appreciate that, that he did that. Yeah. Um, yep. All right. So, sources I used for this include Outrageous Conduct, Art Ego in the Twilight Zone case by Stephen Farber and Mark Green from 1988, uh, Ron LeBrex, Disaster of Twilight Zone, The Tragedy and the Trial from 1988, uh, Joseph, Joseph McBride's Steven Spielberg, a biography from 2010, uh, Robin Murray and Joseph Humans, uh, Ecology and Popular Film, Cinema on the Edge from 2009. Uh, some of the Los Angeles Times newspaper articles uh, from 1987 about the trial. Uh, and the website uh, Crime Library. I read uh, the page on the Twilight Zone tragedy by Denise No from 2014. So, um, Interesting thing. I was just looking up like people hurt in Steven Spielberg movies. The year before the Twilight Zone tragedy in Poltergeist, a young oh, yeah. a young child actor was almost suffocated to death by a malfunctioning mechanical yeah. clown. Yeah, yeah, that scene from the movie, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. almost died. The whole movie is supposedly cursed. Yeah, I know. Yeah. There's actually a really good, um, I-, I think we talked about this the last time we recorded, um, They because they actually have an episode, there's a, a television show called Cursed Films that Shudder produced and made. And they have an episode on the Twilight Zone movie, and they also have an episode on Poltergeist. Yeah, um, like, I know the the 
elder daughter, she was like killed by her boyfriend or mm-hmm. something. And I know the girl was killed or she died. She, like, uh, she had a, they thought that she had like ulcerative colitis or something, but she had a bowel obstruction yeah. and it killed her. It went septic yeah. and killed her. Carol Ann. That's what you name. get for using real skeletons in your movie, Spielberg. I, is that true? Like, it, did he do that, or is that apocryphal? It was Thomas Rapper's book. Oh, yeah. okay. So. Well. You only move the headstones. But then, uh, what's his face? <laughs> um, what's the guy who played Coach? What's his name? Craig T. Nelson. Yeah, well, Craig T. Nelson went on to have a successful career. Okay, well, a curse doesn't hurt everybody. Wait, did Steven Spielberg... Did he just produce? He produced that? it. Toby Hooper okay. directed it. I was but but say. there's the whole there's a whole thing about that where it's like some people think that Spielberg di- secretly directed it because hmm. like supposedly like Zelda Rubenstein like she even said I didn't see him on set. <laughs> um, <laughs> Is that your Zelda Rubenstein impression? <laughs> yeah. Like uh, supposedly she never saw like to- an evil Southern witch or something. <laughs> Suppo- well, I, mean, well, I didn't see him on set. <laughs> supposedly, like um, Blanche. <laughs> Supposedly, she never saw Toby Hooper on set. Um, but yeah, like, uh, well, because like he was, I think under contract, he was directing E.T. at the same time. And I think they released like a week apart or something. Oh. So he wasn't really supposed to be directing it. But Spielberg, he, okay. Yeah. I was like, Toby Hooper didn't direct E.T. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. I mean Spielberg. But so, so it's like, there's just been these rumors over the years that like, yeah, Spielberg secretly directed it. So, but. And I mean, that's neither here nor there and not related to the show in one bit. Yeah. So. Okay, so, yeah, man, that was a bummer. Um, what are we talking about next time? Are we, are we going to lighten it up a little bit? Um, no. Oh, boy. No. Um, we're going to learn why you should really, really, uh, you know, get directions to where you're going. If Map? you don't know where you're going. MapQuest? Google Maps? Uh, before then, but yeah, let, let's just say, you Use know. Use a map? Yeah, yeah you break out the atlas and <laughs> figure out where you're going. Okay, so. all right. Well, looking forward to that. Yeah. Please don't forget to check out our sister projects, or mostly my sister projects. Uh, the YouTube show, The Drunken Pond, which is produced by myself and hosted by our co-producer, Steve, on this podcast, um, where we drink beer and play board games. It's a great time. Uh, Attack of the Final Girls, which is a horror review podcast, uh, which is co-hosted by myself and my lovely pod wife, Juliet. Uh, Three Minute Movies, which is a YouTube channel where I attempt to summarize and spoil movies in three minutes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show so we can stay on the charts. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WeEftUp. I'm Teresa. And I'm Cody. And this is WeEftUp. We